Our text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. If you'd turn there in your Bibles, Hebrews 13, 1 to 6. Again, page 1206, if you're using one of our pew Bibles. Last week, we began by discussing the unique features of each of our individual families. Some families large, some small, some traditional, some non-traditional, some single-parent, two-parent, step-parents, functional, dysfunctional, some religious, some non-religious. And we also reflected on the interactions that we each have within our families on issues such as the care of parents, issues such as evangelizing our lost family members, or even encouraging spiritual growth in those that do know the Lord. And in all of this, it isn't always clear what our role within the family is to be. Although it is clear that we each have a specific role, that with respect to our biological families, that unique role is sometimes challenging to discern. Well, it's this idea of familial role that is brought to us through our title in our text today. I've titled our message, What's Your Role in the Family? This is part two as we started on this last week and uh, got partway through in preparation for our time around the Lord's table in communion. And so we continue today with what's your role in the family? Let me read our text, Hebrews 13, 1 to 6, before we make a few comments about it. Hebrews 13 and verse 1, if you'd follow along in your Bibles. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? What's your role in the family? We recapped last week how Hebrews moved from the incredible doctrinal section of the first 10 chapters, focusing on the superiority of Jesus Christ, and then transitioned in the middle of that 10th chapter to this practical application section in light of that great doctrine which we studied. You can go back and refresh yourself on those wonderful components, both in summary and in depth uh, over those previous messages. So this moved us then to our final section of application here in chapter 13. Our first point that we looked at last week was being a brother in verses 1 to 2. And we saw in verse 1 that being a brother was the command to express brotherly love. That for the Christian, loving your brother or sister in Christ is a necessary requirement. We also recognize that this was not the agape love we're often familiar with, but this was even the lesser devotional phileo love. And we saw that agape love is commanded later in Scripture. In fact, 1 Peter 1.22 talks to us, and we went over how it shows a transition from this phileo love, from this devotional love to that unconditional love of God. But we must begin here. Until we have that foundational devotional love for one another, we can't even ascend and consider that agape love. We look further at the role of being a brother as extended in verse 2, and it was a similar root word to our first brotherly love, Philadelphia, but instead of brotherly love, it was stranger love or love of strangers. And that is the meaning of the word hospitality in verse 2. Hospitality expressed that result in some unknowingly entertaining angels. And that some could still entertain these holy messengers today. And what an amazing consideration that is. Yet it isn't, that po it isn't the possibility of entertaining angels 
which is to motivate us. Rather, it is that we realize how big an impact our hospitality can have. As we open our hearts and our homes to those strangers and we welcome them in with the love of God, the devotional love, it it can impact for eternity. For it is these very events that can stir some to understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So both of these, that brotherly love and that stranger love being commanded to us and and a representation of what it means to be a brother. Hospitality and brotherly love, embracing being a brother in our first point. In our second point, we covered being a member in verse 3. Our author here gives the third command to remember the prisoners, the third command in as many verses. And the association of this command is to be done as if we ourselves were in prison. And in that way, it shows that this ministry is to imprisoned believers. And it, and it impacts our hearts. It's one thing to be told that we are to go and to minister, to remember the prisoners. But how much more if we think of ourselves in that role as a prisoner? How much would we desire? How do we see Paul as he brings the echoes of his time in jail? How desperately he desires to have that love of others, to be remembered. Of course, in that day, that was a a necessity even for his existence. Well, the, the association of that command is powerful as we're to reflect on these imprisoned believers. And of course, this command is well responded to by the opportunity that we have even there in your bulletins today to participate in this Returning Hearts program at Angola Prison. You know, we might think, well, that that just isn't me. The whole idea of of going to a prison, that just sounds really difficult. It just doesn't sound like something that, that maybe fits my general MO, and I understand that. It didn't mine either. But I said, you know, I feel like the Lord is calling me to do that, and oh, yeah, he is, because he's commanded us here in verse 3 to do that. And moving beyond ourselves, moving outside of our comfort zone, will show you things that you can't imagine. You will see an impact of a ministry that is going all across the prison systems of our country. We don't have to spend any time focusing on social aspects or political maneuvering or consideration to realize the cost that the prison systems are to our country not only financially, but in manpower and resources. The prison system that I ministered in Los Angeles County had 20,000 men incarcerated. That's just the county of Los Angeles, let alone all of the state institutions and other counties, even city jails. So not only is there this tremendous resource that's being wasted, but it is a drain on our society, it's a continual attack on our society, and these men in Angola are completely changing that. At the hand of this warden, Burl Kane, there are tremendous things going forth, and we get a chance to participate in that. And we get a chance to fulfill this command. So consider that carefully, and come and speak with me. I'd love to to talk with you more about this returning heart celebration. I assure you, you will be more excited than just about anything you've done in the last several years if you participate in this event. So the first two points in answering the question of what's your role in the family are being a brother and being a member. Because these are members of the family. These are believers that we're to remember. And so this is what our role in the family is, is fulfilling these tasks. And again, you can go back and listen to these elements in detail to refresh yourselves. Well, that takes us to our third point in verse 4. Our third point is being a spouse. Being a spouse. Now the first clause carries the idea of the whole verse and also our third point. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Now as soon as we often read of marriage, there are those that are not married, those that are widowed or those who are single and have remained so or are as yet unmarried. They kind of tend to check out. And you'll say, well, okay, I I don't need to hear this. No, 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 no. Pay careful attention to what it says there. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. 
That word all is vitally important as we understand the meaning of this verse. Marriage is a sacred institution designed by God. It was the first social construct that God designed. It was often a a tradition to have the sacred institution of marriage and its beginning included as a formal reference in a marriage ceremony. This would occur as the pastor would often quote, and many of your marriages may have had these very words from Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and they shall be jo- he shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This new family unit is the focus here. It's not that the mother and father are dishonored. That command does not go away. But it is that there is a new respect. There is a new family unit that is brought together in marriage. And now that is to be the focus. The pastor would often further include our Lord's words from Matthew 19.6 in those vows and in that ceremony. And in Matthew 19.6, it goes on to say, after the Lord quotes Genesis 2.24, which I just read, in Matthew 19.6, it says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. When God designed the institution of marriage, he did it in the most glorious fashion back in Genesis chapter 2. Now we know that Genesis chapter 2 is an elaboration of Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1 gives us an overview of all of the seven literal 24-hour days of creation. And in that detail, Genesis 2 becomes an expansion, an elaboration of that first chapter. Well, having shown Adam his need by having, his, by having him name all of the animals so that Adam would realize that he did not have a helper suitable for himself, God puts Adam to sleep in our very familiar section of chapter 2. He removes a rib from his side and closes up the flesh at that place. And as God does a little chest surgery on Adam in that rib, then we pick it up again in verse 22, just a couple verses before our familiar marriage vow. Listen to Genesis 2, 22, if you would. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from man and brought her to man. The verbiage there can't be missed. God didn't just take a rib and say, okay, poof. You're a woman. And then you say, all right, go right on out there and find Adam. No, 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 not at all. This is Adam's perfect helpmate. God took that rib and he fashioned, he designed, he created, and he made the perfect woman for Adam. And all God's men said, amen, amen. These are our perfect gifts from God. Much more than we ever should deserve. And much more than Adam ever deserved. And he didn't just leave her to wander around in the woods and go, wow, this is weird, now what? He took her to the man. He delivered her to her. I mean, how was that delivery package? Talk about a Valentine's Day celebration. Read a little bit about that in our worship guide article that Tom wrote. It's fabulous. And then make sure you follow in like kind. So, he creates and he, he brings her. And so it is that because uh, of all of this, Adam's response comes out of this in verse 23. And we can't miss it either. Verse 23 is pretty impressive. Adam is elated at the gift. It says in Genesis 2.23, The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. And Adam is just ecstatic about this. He is so overjoyed to consider this gift that has been given to him. I shared this with you at one of the first messages that I had done when I came to the church. Just expressing that joy and that amazement. And referenced how it was kind of like Snoopy doing the dance. You know that we see on TV the head up in the air and he's just ecstatic about it. And uh, one of our wonderful young gifted artists drew me a picture of that that still sits in my office because that's exactly the response that we each must have as we consider this amazing gift of marriage. 
And so it is because of that that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The one flesh describes the, the marital union in every way. It describes it spiritually. It describes it emotionally. And it, and it describes it physically. And in that one flesh union, this new union is a completing of that which was incomplete before. Now the ability to procreate is furthermore brought forward and the fulfillment of God's command to be fruitful and multiply can occur. Remember, that's why God made man back in Genesis 1. Let us make man in our image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So as God brought men here and he tells them to go forth and to fill the earth with your kind, he says this is to be done in the construct of marriage, in the construct of a family unit whereby the father and the mother have now allowed this new unit to develop and this becomes an entity of itself. Jesus' further expansion that what God has brought together, no man is to separate. I love the beautiful language of the King James Version on that verse. What God has brought together, let no man cast asunder. Don't tromp it underfoot. Don't think less of it. Do not in any way defile this beautiful and sacred union. This tells us that there is an expansion on what the Lord has added to marriage. Jesus came in Matthew, and particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, we see him fulfilling the law. He expressly says that in Matthew 5, 17. And he expands the law. And so he does here. It is not just that these two shall become a one flesh union, but that union is not to be separated by man. Man is not to cause divorce, not to cause separation in that union. Now, there are stipulations to this, and that, of course, will be for another time. But Hebrews not only shows us the sanctity of marriage, but these verses in Genesis reveal that marriage is a first and primary social institution developed by God. It is the foundation of society, beloved. It is the foundation of the church. It is that picture that God continues to use as he reflects upon Christ and his bride, the church, us. What an important institution he's shown to us. This is why attacks against marriage are so egregious. And we live in a day, in an age, where Satan has manufactured attacks and an offensive of such magnitude has not been seen since the Garden of Eden. Same-sex marriage has not just swept our country, but the entire world. And the intended result is not to make marriage available to all, regardless of preference, no matter how aberrant. This is a direct attack against God. Have no doubt about it against his institution of marriage, and against the institution of marriage, which is the foundation of the church. For Satan desires to destroy that which God has created in the family and in the church, which is to bring him worship. So Hebrews 4 tells us marriage is to be held in honor by all. Verse 4 further describes the sanctity of the marriage relationship. The middle clause of verse 4, there in your Bibles, relating to that which is to be undefiled, it sets the context in which marriage is to be honored. This special setting, it is to be sacred. It is to be a sacred setting for the husband and the wife. This is a God-ordained and God-honoring environment which must be kept pure and undefiled. Two different means by which marriage is violated follow in verse 4 at the end there. The last term is well understood to be the violation of the marital union and covenant of Genesis 2.24. 
this vile condition horribly damages the sacred union of marriage. This was an offense for which the Old Testament required stoning of the offending parties. How serious was this that such severity would require that those participating would be put to death? Now there are other acts of immorality which are described within the confines of the Old Testament law and they do not receive such severe punishment. But this required the ultimate form of judgment. Not only do we understand the repugnant and the detestable elements of this offense, but we must remember Jesus' perspective on this offense. As our Lord fulfilled the entire Old Testament law and broadened that law as we just saw and spoke about with respect to marriage's inviolability such that no man is to separate marriage, Jesus further broadens the understanding of this offense in Matthew 5, 27. The Lord says there in Matthew 5, 27, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this putrid violation occurs not just in the act, but in the intent. At this, nearly all stand accused and guilty. The question then arises with the first violation. The second being well understood. And, additional, and additionally, why are there two descriptive terms? Here at the end of verse 4. If we understand and would one not take care of it? Did we not get the picture from that? I think we got a great picture. But there is a reason it's here. It was necessary. For if it were not necessary, God would not include it. For there are no extraneous words in this instruction book to you and to me. So we needed to understand what both of these terms mean. Part of our answer lies in the word all. At the beginning of the verse, marriage is to be held in honor among all. All is not referencing both spouses the referent, the, uh, in the relationship, but it is a reference to all people. All people. These references address both the married and the unmarried. The second violation at the end of the verse, which we elaborated on, is committed by one of the offending parties already being in a marital relationship. But all who might engage with a married person can be in violation of the second event, offense. Yet the first offense describes those acts committed outside of marriage and specifically prior to marriage. This is a vital warning for young people as you prepare for marriage, or even if you're not yet making that consideration, you must recognize the necessity of not engaging in such illicit acts, no matter what the nature that they may be. And parents, you must be engaging your young children on this discussion as they arrive at that appropriate stage of life. Sadly, most do not. This is a massive problem in our societies, one that we have so looked over. Those of us from my generation, as we think back to that time where our parents should have instructed and brought us information about how to rightly understand these terms, these violations, and the sanctity of the marital relationship, most had a, a couple-word conversation, a sentence at best, and many let it pass by with no discussion at all. What has that caused? That has caused us to have a society that has little understanding or little respect for the sanctity of marriage because we have not been taken to the book to recognize the consequences and to understand the details that are there. This has resulted in a situation where there is no understanding and now we have a next generation who is in the process of thinking that even their very gender is something that is optional let alone their interaction with those of another persuasion, be they different or like sex. 
There's no discussion here, beloved. It is not what you think you are. You are born and designed by God as you come from the womb, male or female. There's no decision, well, I think I feel this way. You know, sometimes I think I don't feel like what's for dinner, but I better eat it because there's not going to be anything until morning. You better recognize that God has created this, and we need to stop pandering to this ideology of, well, I just kind of feel like this is how I've always been. The way you have always been is the way that you were created. I was horrified to look on the news this morning to see a church in New Jersey celebrating and participating in their Pastor Rose who is going to become Pastor Pete next week. Yeah, that sounds right. Let's have him lead the church or her or whatever. My goodness, where have we gone? And why has it started? Because we have not spoken about this. We have not been open about this. Yes, it's a difficult topic. Grandparents, talk to your sons and daughters if you have not done so. No matter their age. This must be rectified. It is destroying the fabric of our country. And Satan is having a heyday with it. Yes, it's a difficult discussion. There are wonderful resources for it. I would love to speak with you about them. I have several excellent pieces that will help you as a father or mother or grandfather or grandmother to interact and to help your family know how to deal with this issue. Because this ends up not just with unbiblical and deviant relationships, but again, gender confusion, which is beyond acceptance. And this discussion must start with us. It must start with the church, for we have the truth. And it lies in this beautiful fourth verse. The punishment for all this aberrant activity is God's judgment at the end of verse 4. And that judgment for those who continue in engagement in these two violations of marriage is eternal damnation. That's just what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 reveals. Using the very same words that we have here in our text saying that such will not enter the kingdom of heaven. No, this is not those that have committed these deeds on, on a single basis. It is those who go on in an ongoing lifestyle. Such as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Go and look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. If you haven't recently, there are many such deeds and we must know them well. Marriage is a serious and sacred institution and is God's first and primary institution of society. It is to be held in honor by all people. This is your role in the family. It was an understanding of my failure against this verse, particularly the expanded meaning from the Lord in Matthew 5, 27, that stirred me so powerfully towards sanctification. No, I had not participated in such acts, and I felt like I was justified at that point. And then I realized the Lord's intent in Matthew 5, that even to have looked with lust brought guilt and condemnation. And I was guilty, and I realized it, and it began to stir me as I thought of how many other things in my life are not in line with God's word. And God blessed it in an amazing way as he brought tremendous guilt, but tremendous understanding of who I need to be. And beloved, he wants to bring that to you. He wants to bring that understanding to you. And he wants you to assess where are you in your marriage. We need to go to Ephesians 5 and verses 22 to 23. And as men and women, we need to read those particular sections. Those that would think about preparing for marriage must read those sections. How are you doing, ladies, at submitting to your wife as unto Christ? It's not because you've got the perfect leader. Lord knows that my sweet bride does not, nor do you. But that makes no difference. The submission is as unto Christ. What would God do in your hearts if you would recognize this and live in a fully submissive way to that? Again, in the confines of the scripture, reflecting on the truth that we see in texts like 1 Peter 3, that beautiful 
way that a wife is able to win her husband without a word as she submits to him, as he observes her, her chaste and gentle behavior. And of course, men, women have a couple verses to look at. We have several more, nine verses to be exact. And how are we doing, gentlemen? How are we doing at loving our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word? How are you doing at sanctifying your wife through the washing of the water of the word? How are you making sure to translate that she is being basked in the scripture, being cleansed by the holiness of God's word. It's like, oh yeah, well she's got a Bible, that ought to cover it. That doesn't do it. We have a responsibility to lead in that role. And that is so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Men, as we prepare our wives, as we help them be sanctified, help them grow in the Lord, it is so that when they stand before the Lord, they will be holy and blameless and spotless. Don't you want that for your wife? Don't you want her to stand before Jesus and she is there as one who is dressed as the bride, who you have sought to bring holiness and joy to her life and help her to live an obedient way. But for many of us, we are not encouraging their sanctifying. We are simply becoming the vessels of their sanctification as we burden them beyond measure. That is not the right spot. Ask yourself, men, where are you? In this role, so vital for us to understand. This is what it means to hold marriage in honor. How are you doing in this regard? It's a vital and weighty responsibility. It applies to everyone in the church. And this is what being a spouse means. And it explains what your role in the family is. Let's go to our fourth point. Our fourth point in verses 5 to 6 is being cared for. Being cared for. Look at verse 5 with me. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The core of our fourth point comes in the source of, of our confidence. Two different focuses are presented and we're drawn to consider where our confidence lies with respect to money. The first response and the first approach and source of confidence is that of covetousness. This is what is described for the one who loves money. Where it says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. The Bible often speaks about this topic. It is not silent because God wants us to know. He wants us to realize because he has given us ample detail. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3. Ephesians 5 and 3 reads, But immorality and impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Greed, lust for money, it's put right alongside immorality, right alongside what we just saw in verse 4. And it is not even to be named among us. Not only are we not to be a part of it, but it shouldn't even be spoken of. There shouldn't even be consideration of such. Colossians 3.5 also addresses money, very familiar verse. Colossians 3 and 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Our pursuit of greed amounts to idolatry. And isn't that exactly what it is? Isn't it exactly what it is? As we look at those things that we must have, and we pursue them so vehemently that we forget about everything else and absolutely abandon consideration of the Lord. And we must mortify the deeds of our flesh. 
We must put those deeds to death. When those things come to our mind, they must be contained. We must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we must put them to death. It isn't that money is evil, beloved. It is not. Some have badly misconstrued this concept. Rather, it is what you do with that money. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10 gives us instruction on this very point. 1 Timothy 6 and 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The love of money, the greed over money, the lust of money. That is the root of all sorts of evil. And some have been caused to wander from the faith. Perhaps yet still believers, but not following in line with God's word. For we understand that those that are believers will not leave the faith. They cannot, for they are kept in Christ's hands. But we can very much make a mess of things, can't we? That's what he's saying here. And with that, have been pierced by many griefs. Let us not be in that condition. And the contrast to the covetous self-confidence in money is the proper perspective of the next clause in verse 7. Being content with what you have. Contentment is a vital Christian value. How much do we struggle with it, beloved? And how much in this day and age, constantly flashing before your eyes all of the things that you need? You've got to have this. You need that. You deserve this. Paul, Paul recognizes this horrific offense and he speaks about what this looks like in 1 Timothy 6.8. 1 Timothy 6.8 says, If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Wow. Food, covering. Kind of takes us back to the wilderness generation in Israel, doesn't it? They had manna, they had water. It completely sustained their physical bodies with the supernatural elements within that manna. They had clothing and shoes that did not wear out. With such things, be content. Be content, beloved. Contentment is a beautiful possession. An outstanding book on this subject that I would encourage all of you to get is called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's by Jeremiah Burroughs, B-U-R-R-O-U-G-H-S. Jeremiah Burroughs, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. You can pick it up on Amazon for uh, about $7 in paperback. If you do Kindle, if you're an electronic person, 99 cents. This is a tremendous piece Contentment is something our world doesn't want us to have. Marketers want us to want everything. They want our lust to run astray for all of these details. But we must not be there. We must rather be those who are content with what we have. And next, we're told why we're to be content. Because he himself, they're an emphatic designation, and of course means God himself, in the power, the, he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The power of this statement is, is somewhat lost in our English translation. In the original language, the author stacks up these negative terms to communicate the impossibility of these occurrences and thus provide tremendous assurance for us. There is absolutely positively no way that God is ever going to leave us or forsake us. Dr. MacArthur notes on this point, several negatives are utilized in this statement to emphasize the impossibility of Christ deserting believers. It is like saying there is absolutely no way whatsoever that I will ever, ever leave you. That's a fabulous translation. I think we can get that. God's not going anywhere, beloved. He is right there with us. This repeated string of negatives brings us great assurance. And it brings us assurance because it's a comment on God's steadfastness and on his faithfulness and on his love. Now this verse is often taken out of context. 
Clearly our context is that of money, as the beginning of verse 5 confirms. Although certainly by application it can be broadened to God's provision, as that's also dealt with in the overall tone of this verse. But this common theme in Scripture is used in a more broad context in many passages. Go back to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy chapter 31. In verses 6 and 8, we see this same idea. In fact, Deuteronomy 31, 6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. A repeated phrase that God uses with Joshua. And by application to us, God is not only our provision, He is our protection. He made similar promises to Jacob in Genesis 28, 15. And so we're able to expand this verse rightly to realize that God will indeed never leave us nor forsake us. Whether it be with respect to provision or protection or in every way because, beloved, God is with us. He is never going to depart from you. There is never a thought that you will have that He is apart from. That can be a daunting consideration. But his protection is always there. Every prayer that you bring forth is immediately in his ears. God is always with us. And this is what being cared for means. And because of this glorious truth, we have the powerful statement of verse 6. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? That's a quote of Psalm 118 in verse 6, by the way. Psalm 118, a powerful messianic psalm, a a psalm of ascent. It's actually the same psalm where the words from the crowd at Jesus' triumphal entry come from. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All from Psalm 118. God's help removes any fear of man. This concept is repeatedly echoed in the psalms in places like Psalm 56.4. The beginning of verse 6 here indicates the confidence of the proclamation. And and that word confidently can actually mean boldness or courageous. We have a courage, we have an inner strength and conviction that comes from the fact that we can be absolutely assured that God is always with us. He is not going to abandon his promises, beloved, and he is not going to abandon you. If you are his, nothing can snatch you from his hand. You are eternally saved and secure. And yet there is the understanding that for those that are, they will live like it. What a beautiful consideration that we have this provision, that courage, the reassurance of this beloved in the world in which we live where there seems nothing that is solid, where there is constantly ebb and flow, morality has gone out the window, the depravity of our country, the depravity of our world, and we recognize that in all of this, this is evidence of us being under the wrath of God. How much more can it get? We often have said, as we think back and as we look at all that's going on from the sexual revolution to the homosexual revolution to, to wherever we are today, we've said, you know, we've got to realize that it was worse back before the days of Noah because that's what the scripture tells us, that when it gets to that point that God will return. I begin to ask myself, were they trying to change sexes in the day of Noah? How bad is it going to get? But this emboldens us. This helps us to know that God is never going to leave us. We don't need to fear. He is right here. He is guiding us. And he is empowering us. And he's saying, because of that, know this, my children. Know it and carry forth this truth. Because this world desperately needs something to hold on to. And this is the only thing which will stand. This is the only rock. The practical outworking of this, beloved, is in the sharing of our faith. Because often it is fear that prevents us. And it's not, if we're going to be honest, it's not fear of God. It's not that I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing and God's going to be upset with me. It's fear of man. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want people to laugh at us or mock at us or be mean to us. So we don't speak. 
But yet we must recognize that God is with us and we must be the proclaimers of this steadfast provision and protection. This boldness is because the Lord is my helper. The root of this word helper is so beautiful. It is a a word that describes cables that would undergird a ship. If you go back to Acts chapter 27 and the storm is assailing the sailors as Paul is attempting with the crew to get to Italy with the centurion and the storm is crushing the boat. So what do they do? They take cables and they undergird the ship to try to hold the boat together. That's this word helper. God is the one that is undergirding us. He is putting cables under us. When it feels like all hell is breaking loose and you don't have a chance of holding on, God is right there holding the ends of the cables going, come on, keep moving with me. Keep stepping forward. He is our helper and a glorious help in time of trouble. And because of this, we will not be afraid. Notice the future verb. There's a confidence going ahead. I will not be afraid. I will not allow anything to make me afraid. Because God is the one who is with me. He is that helper. And we know from 1 John 4, 8, that there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. Do you have perfect love? I don't. I don't. But guess who does? The God who loves you. He has perfect, agape, unconditional love for you. Have no fear, beloved. He is with you. He is your helper. He is the undergirding cable. Beloved, if there is nothing that man can do with you, if you are in God's hands and you are in his full control, why aren't we pressing out there against the storms of this world? When we describe our fourth point, being cared for, is there any way in which we could be better cared for? You can pursue your own provisions and seek to amass your own great wealth. But by the way, how did this go for the rich farmer in Luke 12, 18? Luke 12, 18, the Lord says, He said to them, this is what I will do. The rich man speaking in this parable. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat and drink and be merry. Is this not the maximum ascent of the pursuit of wealth and the lust and greed? But verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? Scripture tells us, fear not him who can kill the body, but fear him who is able to cast body and soul into hell. So we can be greedy and lust after money, or we can trust in the Lord's provision and know that we have abundance is perhaps one of the most dangerous elements in our world. We are, do you realize we are the most affluent people ever upon the face of this earth? The poorest, the very poorest in our country are amongst the top one-tenth of one percent of the most wealthy people to ever walk this planet. The poorest of our country. Where is that place you and me? This affluence draws us apart. This affluence the enemy uses to pull us from God. So as we ask our title question, what's your role in the family? The answer is abundantly obvious. It's being a brother. Both by expressing brotherly love and by expressing love of strangers in hospitality. It's by being a member looking out for other members of Christ's body, even those outside this local body of believers, even into the jail systems. It's being a spouse, a responsibility to honor marriage, whether we're married or not. It's being cared for, recognizing God's perfect care and not greedily pursuing all that you think you can have and might deserve. You see, beloved, what happens when you obey your role in the family, it isn't just you that thrives, but it is the entire body around you. Because we see this in one another and we're spurred on to greater faithfulness. That's what a body does. 
We grow together. We learn. We strengthen one another by the way that we carry forward the job that we've been given. We all are a part. We all are ears, eyes, fingers, toes. And God says, be strong in that role and carry forward and encourage those around you. So can you grow in any of these areas? Can you grow in all these areas? I suspect we all can. And if you still don't see your role, if you're not convicted about ways in which you fall short in some or all of these areas, then it may be that you don't know Christ. You haven't been drawn and your heart has not been broken and you've not recognized that you are sinners separated from God and that you fall short every day. And that for your sin you are deserving of ultimate damnation and separation from God. Beloved, if that is you here today, don't waste another minute. Don't play games with God. Don't sit here and think, my life's okay. You know, I'm just a kid or, you know, I'm going to get there. I'm going to make that decision before the Lord comes to take me. Because remember the rich man in Luke 18. Tonight, your soul may be required of you. How many have passed in like fashion? Don't allow that to be you. Accept Jesus. I plead with you to recognize today your sin. To fall on your knees and cry out to God that he would bring healing. That he would bring forgiveness. That he would bring cleansing from the darkness that is in your flesh and mine and all of ours. See that truth. Come to Christ. Realize the joy and the peace. Realize the blessings that lie in this solid rock in the truth of this text. Beloved, come to Christ if you do not know. If you are not struck by where you need to be. You see, this is what your role in the family looks like. You may not understand your role in your biological family too well. But there is no question about your role in this family. Beloved, may God strengthen you to fulfill your role and to obey His Word.